0: Hinduism. I had originally a brief history, and that sounded really dull, so I changed it to that. So hopefully there'll be some talking points tonight. I don't know if there actually will be. It just sounded kind of sophisticated. Um, Most of us have some basic idea of Hinduism, but there's kind of a big difference between Hinduism and Christianity, at least, in terms of how they understand their religious experience. And so what I want to try and do is as we're going through tonight, just find some different places where we're different um, and then find some places where we might have some similarities. So at least we have some places where we can have a conversation. For Hinduism, or at least for people who are Hindu, the sacred is experienced through sound and vision. Okay, so there's a huge emphasis placed on uh, sound and vision, which means that the majority of their sacred scriptures uh, weren't written down for a long period of time. So most of it was transmitted orally, which uh, the early Jewish tradition was also the same way. Again, another oral tradition, and same thing in Islam as well. So um, that's one big point of Hinduism. And I just have on the screen there a couple of words. Um, Shruti refers to that which was heard, okay, the sound part. And then the seers are those who are transmitting it basically. So that wise teacher, something of that nature. Uh, We're going to talk about this a little bit later, but darsana basically refers to righteousness, righteous living. So part of righteous living is to see with um, piety, to be pious, um, to behold, to see the faith. And also part of that involves making sure you're actually spending time with a holy teacher. Because the thing about uh, Hinduism is it's very fluid. Uh, so the ideas and the concepts change over time. So authoritative text, what does it mean for something to be authoritative? Well, for us, what's authoritative? For Protestants, it's typically the Bible, okay? And it's the, old te- or the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. And then of course, if you kind of break out of that tradition and you go to Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, you'll see that they incorporate other elements as well. But for us, it's the Bible. Um, But in Hinduism, there's no single authoritative text, there's no single authoritative uh, deity or teacher. In fact, as you'll see a little bit later, um, you can kind of really place all of your emphasis in one God. And that God can be the sole creator, destroyer, and redeemer. And you can go another community over, and it's the other God. Um, So they actually have a very large corpus of holy works, What I want to do here is just give a a quick history so that we can get to some of the topics but so you have a frame of reference for what we're talking about. And many Hindus are unaware of most of the sacred text, which, if you think about most Christians today, I would think that many Christians are fairly unaware of of their own Christian, you know, their own biblical text. You've probably heard of the Bhagavad Gita. That's kind of a central text for most Hindus. Most Hindus will be able to tell you about it. But beyond that, they're not going to be able to tell you about any of their Vedas. They're not going to be able to tell you the different types of uh, works within it. So again, ask most Christians about really detailed things in the Bible, and they'll kind of stare at you blankly, too. So, uh, and again, many Hindus, like they place their own priority over certain deities, they also place um, priority over certain texts. The word Hinduism is not how they actually refer to themselves. Hinduism is a Western designation. It's a Western term, and it really became a prominent term in 19th century and 18th century uh, uh, India when Great Britain was the colonial power there. So they basically referred to anybody who was Hindu was just somebody who wasn't a Muslim or a Christian. About 80% of India is Hindu. Hindus, since they don't actually identify themselves, you know, as, I'm a Hindu or I believe in Hinduism. They typically identify themselves by their caste. For those of you who like words, I, this, is, this is really nerdy, but I just thought you might appreciate this. The word India isn't even their own word for their own country as well. <laughs> okay. uh, in the 6th, no, it's of the 8th century BCE, the Greeks basically encounter the subcontinent of India, and uh, they give it the word Sind. And the Persians in the fourth century, when they encounter the Indians, they, don't, they transliterate the S to an H. And then when Alexander the Great conquers Persia and meets the Indians, they didn't have a, a, a word for H in Greek, so it got turned into an I, India. So there you go. For those of you who like words, I thought that was kind of cool. They, basically, the origin of the people works this way. There is an indigenous people and there were two civilizations, two cities that we found, basically. Harappa is the main one, and then Mohenjo-daro, which means mound of the dead, it's kind of a cool name for a city. Those two cities date to around 20, 2750 BCE. Okay, What happens is there's a group of people called the Indo-Europeans, and they actually invade the subcontinent around 1750. And basically, those two groups of people end up becoming one, so at least in theory. Um, The Harappa civilization though, so the Harappa civilization is the first one about 2750, they actually worshiped a mother goddess. And um, they had prototypes of several of contemporary Hindu gods, so uh, Vishnu and actually Shiva appears in some of their, uh, some of the documents or uh, some of the clay pots they found. They disappeared mysteriously and some elements of Hinduism are linked to this civilization. So there's parts of Hinduism that we know for sure is part of the Indo-European invaders, but there's other parts that predate it. Okay, so there's your basic history, yeah. The Indo-Europeans, real quick, they basically invaded the Indian subcontinent around 1750. It It was a huge, massive migration. They just didn't invade India. They actually invaded, as the theory goes, most of the world. There's four kind of perspectives on how this happened, that they came from Europe and migrated to India and Central Asia, that they left India and migrated to Europe, or they left modern-day Turkey and went out, or the other one was they left Asia and went to Europe, because there's basically all of these theories as to how this massive migration occurred, and a lot of it's actually linked to your nationalistic pride. I actually typed in Indo-European on Google, and the first website that came up was whitehistory.com, and why the the Aryan whites were the first ones who migrated across the, um, so it's, it's it's connected, a lot of the theories are connected to your kind of religious perspective or your political perspective, but nonetheless, either around 2000 BCE or 6000 BCE, there was a massive migration of people across the continent, and for a while, they actually had one common language, sounds a lot like what? Yeah, the story of Babel, right. Uh, In fact, there's there's my map. I just wanted to give you some of the languages. Sanskrit was one of them, which is the ancient language of India. Persian, Russian, Greek, Latin, German, and English are all derivatives of that ancient Indo-European civilization, that migration that occurred, so here's India. You know, depending on how you view the migration, they basically came down this way into the subcontinent. So they, t- they either wiped out the Harappa civilization or just uh, intermixed with them so much that they both just disappeared. Okay, so now we'll get into a little bit more of uh, theology and some interesting discussion here. The Vedas are their, the earliest known compositions of the Indo-Europeans, so they are kind of the sacred text, the primary sacred text of Hinduism and they're composed sometime between 1500 BCE and 600 BCE. Now, for those of you uh, interested in the biblical text, uh, there are kind of two big camps. Uh, if you think that Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, then that would be sometime, give or take a few hundred years, but it would be closer to 1500. If you think that Moses didn't write it, then uh, you might fall into a camp where you think that most of the Hebrew scriptures were written sometime after 600 BCE, in which case these would be older texts. Uh, there are four uh, Vedic collections. The Rig, Sama, Yajur, and Atharva. Okay, so these are the four primary Vedas, okay, and they're broken up further into hymns, some Samhitas, Brahm- uh, Brahmanas, ritual treatises, Aranyakas, compositions for the forest, I think you gave Hinduism to me so that I had to pronounce all these <laughs> words. And the Upanishads, which basically is philosophy and teaching. Okay? That's why it literally means sitting near the teacher. The earliest ones, or the earliest composition we have is a hymn from the Rig Veda. Okay? The earliest compositions are the, the hymns. The last ones are the philosophical and theological treatises. Okay, so that theology and philosophy doesn't develop till much later. Creation hymn. Everybody knows the story as it's reported in our text, but I wanted to read a portion of the creation hymn from Hinduism. There was neither non existence nor existence then. There was neither the realm of space nor the sky which is beyond. What stirred? Where? In whose protection was there water bottomlessly deep? There was neither death, nor, or, nor immortality. There was no distinguishing sign of night, nor of day. That one breathed windless by its own impulse. Other than that, there was nothing beyond. Darkness was hidden by darkness in the beginning with no distinguishing sign. All this was water. the life force that was covered with emptiness, that one arose through the power of heat. Desire came upon that one in the beginning. That was the first seed of mind. Poets seeking in their heart with wisdom found the bond of existence in non-existence. Whence this creation has arisen, perhaps it formed itself, or perhaps it did not. The one who looks down on it in the highest heaven, only he knows, or perhaps he does not know. Where's some areas of commonality. Water, right? Right, neither, neither night, neither light, right, or night. What's that? Formlessness. Formlessness. What's different though? Yeah, maybe he knows and maybe he doesn't know. This is straight from the Rig Veda, okay? This is, so this is from the oldest hymn that they have. Yeah, and I skipped a couple sections, but basically in other places they just, the, the person is asking, when was it made? Who produced it? Did that person even know that it was produced? You know, okay. Was it a cosmic accident? There's also an extremely interesting hymn of the Supreme Person. And then this hymn, you have the primeval man who is sacrificed not only to redeem the world, but to create it. This, or it's, at least it's played a role in the tradition for over 3,000 years. This idea of a, yeah, a cosmic, and it's as, as like the primeval man. I'll actually read a part of the Veda here. It says, the cosmic person has a thousand heads, a thousand eyes and feet. It covers the earth on all sides and extends ten finger lengths beyond. The cosmic person, this is the sacrifice, is everything, all that has been and will be. Everybody okay with that? The idea of a sacrifice already occurred a thousand years before Christ? It appears in other traditions. So we weren't the first, so what?
1: But even the concept of sacrificing people or humans isn't entirely unique to Jesus. Even in our own tradition, like like if you go back all the way to Abraham, like he was asked to sacrifice his son. So there's like a foreshadowing. But forgetting the spiritual implications, it wasn't like he had never heard of this before. So maybe there's always been kind of this part of it that relates to that. Like it's not that Jesus being sacrificed a person, although being a sacrifice for the creation, all that stuff, kind of
0: elevates it to a whole Yeah, level. In fact, our scriptures actually say as much. They say that, yeah, Jesus Christ is crucified in a particular place and time, but that that sacrifice had also occurred before what? Before the beginning. So that, the, so that somehow within God's own time or somehow within God's own world, that sacrifice had already occurred. The caste system. How many of you are familiar with the caste system? Um, There's actually four basic components, but there are over a 1,000 varieties. So the four major ones, the first one and the highest one is the priestly class. And then you've got the rulers. You've got basically the producers refers to people who deal in commerce and economics, economy, people who sell stuff. And at the very bottom, of course, as everyone else. But there's actually a thousand different divisions. Okay. I'm not quite sure of how it breaks down whether there's like you know 201 and you know 200 and another but most people remember how I said earlier they don't identify themselves as Hindus they actually identify themselves by their caste. What's interesting is that the authority to teach the Vedas, okay, the most sacred holy text belongs of course to the priestly class. So strictly forbidden. If you do not belong to the priestly class, you can't even teach them. You can listen to them if you are in the ruling class or if you're in the mercantile class, you can learn them. Okay? But you're not allowed to teach them. And if you're down in the servant class, you're just kind of out of luck. This is their primary sacred text, by the way. You can just pick up a Bible right at the Christian bookstore. If you can get past all the books on... Uh, the Antichrist in Israel or something. So, yeah, um, all the power is basically held up in one group, priestly caste. Isn't
2: yeah. That, like, still valid, though?
0: Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to it in a second, because the reason you're in your caste, uh, people don't, they don't reflect and say, oh, I wish I could get out of this caste and, you know, let's start a revolution in India. You're actually there because of some spiritual depravity. That's, at least that's how they see it. Some people like to say, you know, yeah, there's this Veda that talks about the organization of castes, but in actuality, there at least might be uh, some link between that group of people who were conquered by the Indo-Europeans, so they basically came in and said, hey, we're the priestly caste, we're going to control all the money and all this, and you guys are going to be in that lower caste because we conquered you. It's not entirely spiritual. Okay, yeah. Um, how do you get into certain classes? Because if you're, in a class, you're born into it. That's it. There's no movement between the four groups, but like I said, there are a thousand subgroups. So whether or not there's some flexibility and some fluidity in those groups, not sure. Right. But I imagine nobody goes down. The lower classes are seen as spiritually depraved. They're there for a reason. They were reborn into that caste. The word karma means action. And I, uh, I think a lot of people have this idea that you know, good karma is you know, what you want. But in fact, even good karma is bad. You don't want any karma at all. In later writings, karma actually refers to a system of rewards and punishments. Life, death, rebirth, life, death, rebirth. So your ultimate goal is to be free from karma. And what's interesting, okay, that freedom comes from enlightenment. And part of that enlightenment is understanding the way in which you are supposed to return to the ultimate truth. And there's actually a process that you can follow to do that. Okay? So, but if you do bad things in this life, for example, then you're going to accumulate more bad karma, which is definitely going to at least impact your rebirth into the type of the next caste or whatever that you end up coming back uh, in that structure. Yeah. So
2: does that mean so that you do good things or instead?
0: Right, because you're still tied to the material world, and you don't want to be tied to the material world. Christians were commanded to to do these types of things as well, but we're actually given a reward in heaven. We actually talked about this on the Matthew sermon. So there's no reward the, once you've discovered and once you become one with the ultimate truth. It's nothingness. Yeah. Um,
2: okay, so I understand like the whole caste system and if you live your life only well in that caste, you can be born into a higher caste and the next and the next. Do you have to go to the priest or Brahmin caste to be able to reach enlightenment? Or can you go from like the lowest class system and live the best life possible and just skip all that? And
0: yeah, that's a good question. Because there's, uh, there's what, what's called the Hindu way. And so if you follow the, the kind of this formula, okay, this pattern for your life, you'll be able to reach enlightenment. And my understanding of it is it doesn't matter what, what caste you're in. Because you, anybody could do it. Okay, so, liberation occurs when you take the following steps, the following abbreviated steps. The way of action, the way of knowledge, and the way of devotion. And here's how this works. The way of action, say you're a young man, um, graduated from college, and you get married, and so now you are basically living the way of action. You're providing for your family, you're giving alms, those types of things. And you do this for 10, 20 you know, years. Now your kids are starting to get into college and they're graduating, and now your kids are coming into their own life, okay, so now they have wives, now they're providing for family, okay, they're they're providing for themselves. So at this point in your life, you enter into kind of the way of knowledge, where you, it's not quite like retirement, but you spend more time studying, you spend more time reading, you spend more time learning about the things that are gonna lead you to enlightenment, religious things, spiritual things.
2: Yeah? Where would they be learning it from since, like you said, at least originally it's not really like focused on those texts, like the lower castes don't be able to...
0: Right. That's a problem too. That's a good question. And again, the one thing I forgot to mention is, if you go up to, again, if you go up to most Hindus, they can't even really tell you about most of their sacred texts. So it's not like this is the prescription that most people follow. Last week we talked about Islam as a cultural identity. There are similar things going on here, but if somehow you know, you've, you're able to retire, you can take care of your spouse, but you can spend more time devoted to studying, you find a priest or a teacher um, you know, who can share this information with you, uh, what would happen is you'd keep doing that until you get to the point where it's the way of devotion. And The best way to describe this is You know, you don't have any responsibilities anymore. You don't have a house payment. Um, Maybe your spouse is is dead. Whatever. Your kids are fine. They have grandkids now. You don't have to worry about them. So you basically give up everything. You you become an ascetic. You retreat out into the wilderness, and you basically live off of what people give you. Um, This is, again, the abbreviated story, but the point here at this point is, you know, now you are living this life of devotion as opposed to just action, right? The way of action can still be good karma, but it's different from devotion. Yeah.
1: Uh, Two questions. Is that found in the Vedas, this teaching of the Hindu way?
0: Yes, but it's a later Veda.
1: Okay, and will it get rid of all karma? So you can escape, like it's a shortcut, like one lifetime, you can shed the karma by following this?
0: I suppose you could see it that way. I suppose it could also be you know, you've already rebirthed a thousand times, right? And so, you've, you know, you've, you finally have gotten it, right? But again, if most people do, is a different story. I mean, this is kind of the, the, the philosophical and theological perspective about how you attain nothingness and, you know, become reunited with the ultimate one. Yes?
2: How does the idea of giving work when they believe that you deserve to be where you're at?
0: Good question. See, the thing is, is you're still supposed to do good things, right? Because you, you don't want bad karma, okay? Bad karma is definitely bringing you back, okay? But so if you do some good karma, right, almsgiving, and then you progress to the point to where you're like, oh, okay, now I see, you know, this, now it's time for me to go and reflect on more spiritual matters. Maybe, you're not maybe even doing that anymore, okay? It, it changes, but I don't think I answered your question either, so I think the, the tension's still there, yeah.
2: are gonna have a better
1: understanding how
0: to not be so do they don't come back? Yeah. The the way to answer or at least the way to think about that is I wouldn't be able to know, I suppose, what souls had finally reached enlightenment. All you can assume is that if you're here, you haven't done it yet. So if you're in the priestly cast, you know, you're you're definitely getting close. Good questions. Um, Atman and Brahman. Atman refers to the human soul. Okay? Brahman refers to the supreme being. Brahman pervades the world, is in the world, but also transcends it at the same time. So to know Brahman is to enter into a new state of consciousness. But Brahman is not, in fact, the ultimate god. We'll see that in a second. It gets very interesting. By the way, uh, this is yeah the Bhagavad Gita uh, composed around 200 BCE. This is where you find major work on the idea of human soul versus human body. Again, in Hinduism, at least in its like, proper philosophical and theological form, body is bad, body is bad, material is bad, soul is good. Very similar to early Christian Gnosticism, where the emphasis was all on the soul. What's the point of Christ's resurrection, though? Right? Where the emphasis in Hinduism at some point is to get away from your body, whereas in Christianity, we are actually resurrected back into a new one, but nonetheless described as a, a body. Um, very Jewish, too. I mean, there's, in Ju- Judaism, there's a very close link okay, between your body and your soul. Vishnu, Shiva, and the goddess. Vishnu and Shiva are probably the two most prominent gods that you might think of in Hinduism. Um, They are learned about through a text called Puranas, which basically deal with old tales, and I've got the dates there when most of them were written. Any deity that's introduced into Hinduism never goes away, it just gets added. That's why there's so many. I've heard the number at millions. And a lot of times, it's not just that they, once they're added, they stay. Sometimes they actually change names. Yeah. And so you can go from one community to the next community, and one god will have one name, and it'll have a different name in another place, and it's actually the same one. Uh, but these two, for some reason, really stand out. Vishnu means the all-pervasive one. Uh, he likes to take on animal and human form. He is the one who rids the world of evil. He establishes righteousness. And he is viewed uh, incarnationally, okay? So there's 10 incarnations of Vishnu. Eight have already occurred. We're in the ninth one right now. And the 10th one is him coming back to destroy evil. We're about 400,000, no, 427,000 years away from it. In one incarnation, he actually comes to Manu, who is talked about as a primeval man, one primeval man and tells him to build a boat because he's going to flood the world. So he actually comes in the carnation of a fish. Manu goes, sees the fish, puts the fish in a the bowl, and the next night the fish is bigger than the bowl, so he puts it in a lake and it's bigger than the lake. And then it talks to him and says, you've got to build this boat. Um, take your family, seven sages, and basically the animals with you. Another example of a, a flood story. All right, Shiva is actually, what's interesting, so uh, what's interesting about Vishnu is that he's viewed in the sense of incarnations, okay? Comes back in human form, animal form. She, or he actually, he, Shiva, is viewed in contradictions, threatening and benevolent, creator and destroyer, exuberant dancer and austere yogi or teacher. Um, And often uh, his creative energy is viewed in, uh, quite often, uh, very explicit sexual terms, so. So, uh, there's one more person who's important, at least for us to know, is the goddess. And sometimes the goddess is referred to as Pavarti or Kali, and again, has several distinctive characteristics. Creator of the universe. You're seeing some of these gods and goddesses share dual roles. And in fact, in this case, she's not an appendage to a male god. She's actually her own separate entity, okay, yeah.
2: What is the purpose of their gods and their belief? Like, do they use the gods as, hey, I, this, if I believe, if they believe in one god, we created this god for everything. Or if they believe in multiple gods, do they pray to the gods to get things? Or like, what is the purpose of them having their gods in their belief?
0: That's a good question, and I will answer it, hope, or at least address part of that question on the next slide. There's actually a notion of the trinity in Hinduism. It's, it's notional, but it's there. Um, and that is between Brahma, Vishnu, and, S- and Shiva. And the difference here is that Hindus, they give equal importance to all three gods. But in practice, they typically elevate one over the other. Okay, So technically, they're all equal. But in the actual community and the way it works itself out, you pick one. Okay, So if you were to talk to a Hindu, they might talk about Vishnu or Shiva being the, the ultimate god. But if you're going to go to actual you know, Hinduistic theology... They're they're technically co-equal. While technically co-equal, Brahma is seen as the agent of Vishnu and Shiva. The only way that I can think about that is Brahma as the spirit, like the Holy Spirit maybe. And actually most people don't worship Brahma. Time. The cosmos, they experience cycles of creation and destruction. So Brahma the one who is ordered to create essentially, he exists for a hundred God years, which which is equivalent to 311 and 40 million human years. Brahma creates for a hundred God years. And so there is a certain number for how many human years one God year is, something like 4,300 years. Uh, And I I don't know how they figured out how long a God year was in human years. There's there's actually a determined number of yeah this is how many human years are in a god year, unlike ours where God is timeless. These gods are very timeful, and when it recreates itself, it could be Vishnu, it could be Shiva. And at the end of this cycle, Brahma is basically taken up and evolves again, and the cosmos basically reproduces itself. So you have these epics, where you have or these epochs where you have uh, a new primeval man. You have a new evolutionary cosmos every 300 and so million years and again the lifespan of each cosmos so we're living in one right now Exists in four the golden age is where righteousness abounds the Trita age is righteousness is pretty much still abounding but it's weakened So instead of it, you know, the analogy is a bull standing on four legs. Now in the Trita age, now the bull standing on three. And the the Devapara age, two legs. So pretty much becoming depraved. And the Kali Yuga, which is the one we're living in, so the bull's on one leg. And they actually have a number for the Kali Yuga. It's something like uh, 432,000 years. And it began in 3102 BCE so we're at the very beginning of that last degenerate phase so during this time evil basically abounds there's no there's very little righteousness what's the difference though in god's final judgment and this what happens when this ends the cosmos starts over and we have a new a new one how, how would we talk to someone who's a hindu what would be the first avenue into having a conversation and where would the starting point be, the starting place be for talking to somebody? Yeah.
2: I think you could start with um, the similarities in the creation story, you know, and then somehow, you know, pique your interest and go from
0: there. Yeah, Phil?
2: Going off that a little bit, too, like each Hindu is going to be, I would say, more different in their beliefs than even you take most of the religions within a religion. Like most Christians, yeah, there's different denominations, but I think they'd be closer than most Hindus would be. And I think that so good starting point would have to be to figure out what they believe, because it could be anything in many points. Yeah, there's some similarities, but... Because like you said, like, some of them might not have any understanding of any text whatsoever. Some might be using just one, like just this one verse that they really like and make their whole theology out.
0: I actually think it'd be harder to speak to a Hindu than it would a Muslim. because I feel like at least I would have something in common with someone who believes in one, even though it's very monotheistic, at least it's one God. Whereas here, I think they could maybe just say, yeah, that's fine, you believe in God, I do too. Is it comforting to know that here, here's the idea of, yeah, you just reach into nothingness? Why does, why does that bother some of you? Why? <laughs> You're
1: likely to in the universe and all over again we trapped in the karmic system trying to find a way back out to nothingness. So it
2: seems like you're not
1: actually freeing but getting stuck in a bigger wheel. It takes a little bit longer to turn around.
0: Yeah. Excellent point. I didn't even pay you to say that. <laughs> That's very nice. Yeah. There is the idea where even if you escape, if you, you finally escape this epic, you just, you end up coming back in the next one. Even if it is, you know, several hundred million years.
1: I think that karma is a great place to speak to people about this. I mean, rather than trying to say you believe in millions of gods, potentially, or one, or seven, we believe in one, the idea of karma is a place that we can just start to discuss because people see that there's stuff going on in the world. They agree, just like we agree, that people do things that are wrong. And you might be able to connect with people at that level. I mean, you're not going to... You're not really looking to win a point here. What you really do is exploring, like, what is the consequence of bad acts? Like, what are they in Hinduism? What are they, like, for example, in other worldviews about Christianity? Like, even in Hinduism, there seems to be a way to ultimately escape from those effects. That's kind of similar to Christianity, different mechanism, but to see the kind of underlying thing. It seems like we're both trying to get out of this fallenness that we're in. Maybe that just begins to turn the ideas because. There might be someone who is dissatisfied with a system that can, you could never get out of. Or wonders whether there's rebirth and constant recycling, as opposed to maybe moving on in a linear sense, kind of the way that you're it. But at least in that place where you're talking, you know, you're just sharing ideas and learning about them, and they are learning about you, and you can share without coming across like, well, you just have to put down all your gods and let's just talk about Jesus.
0: What's more appealing, uh, dying and being judged? by one God or dying and, and, and getting another chance to do it right. That's, that's what I wonder. Like if they were to say, well, yeah, but if I, you know, if I go with you, I'm, I'm done, right? That
1: assumes there's a choice between them, right? Like it doesn't say that they're both right. It just says you just had a conversation. Like it's not a multiple choice test. Like Which God do you want to be right? I,
0: yes, it's not a multiple choice test, but there is a lot more fluidity here. And I'm not saying that's wrong at all. I'm just saying, um, what is so interesting to me is that there's so much fluidity that it just it seems overwhelming to try and talk to someone who really, yeah, it's, you know, it could be Vishnu, it could be Shiva, it could be, um, yeah.
1: I think
2: maybe one point that could be appealing to them is being able to better yourself in this lifetime and not being confined to a caste for the rest of your life, which if you're in the high caste, that's probably not that appealing, but if you're in your low caste, there's hope in that message, like, look, you really didn't do anything wrong. You're not condemned to this. There's something
0: that could give you hope and you can... Why isn't there a social revolution in India, though? Don't you think that'd be the first place it happened? You would think of all places in the world where people would be unrest, you know, whether it be, you know, social and economic and political unrest, it'd be that country. Yet they're all pretty unified, right, against Pakistan, you know, and other local issues that are going on there. The Muslim question, by the way, is a big question in India. That's one of the reasons that Pakistan and India don't like each other, and they both have nukes pointed at each other. Any other thoughts, questions, comments?
1: If you don't follow the Hindu way, that kind of shortcut, then what's the other alternative? You just try to get rid of karma and just hope you keep, you know, reincarnating upwards.
0: Yeah, I think so. What's what's so um, perplexing to me is that this kind of. Theology, this philosophy that we typically learn either in our comparative religions courses or like what I'm trying to teach you here, that's coming from, you know, scholars who have read the Vedas, right, and have talked to these Hindu thinkers. So you're getting the full-fledged account. Again, you're, you know, we're, we're getting all the resources of someone who's read these texts, translated them, knows the theology, whereas most Hindus aren't even going to know that. You know, most Hindus are going to know one or two hymns really well.
1: What are their rituals? Uh,
0: They have a lot of um, temples, so there's a lot of temple worship and, of course, there's rituals um, inside your house, too, you can actually, you have idols in your house and those types of things. Festivals, you know. Beyond that, I'm not entirely too sure. Have been feeding the
2: smallest of God's creatures, so like the women in certain parts of India will get up early in the morning before the sun comes up and make gorgeous designs like patterns on the floor of rice and like sugar for like the ants to come and eat of their house as an act of worship
0: the cow is, cow is sacred yeah there's also a tree that's very sacred and it's 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 not worshiped but it's venerated and i forget the name of the tree but it actually goes back to that pre-time the harappa civilization so it's been sacred for like three thousand years That's the one thing I'm not clear about: is if you actually can be reincarnated as a different animal, or if you're just reincarnated within your own species. Because I was getting the impression that more or less you just come back in a lower caste. You don't actually, you don't come back as like a bug. I could be understanding it incorrectly. Yeah. Like
2: again, this is what the theology says at the very least. But like as far as I'm understanding, you have. Theoretically, I'm living a thousand lifetimes, I'm constantly striving to get to this goal, and the goal is just nothingness. Is it basically the idea of Hinduism that life on earth is absolutely so terrible that nothingness is better?
0: Okay. You have a raising of the soul way over the body in Hinduism. So your part of that identity is, yeah, I, all I really care about is soul. Okay, which again, if you look at the ancient Near East, you know, if you look at the Greeks, right, Plato and Aristotle, who talked about those types of things, they're not that far away from, you know, this kind, these kinds of ideas are around. But if if your primary so- uh, focus is on the soul, then any material thing, even if it's good, is going to cause you to slip back and stumble. Right? It could bring you down. Yeah. Uh
1: Hindu's different than Buddhism, right? And then what's it seems like Buddhism's more popular than Hindu.
0: Hinduism is predominant in India, but there was a period in India's history where Buddhism was the prominent religion. So there is an interplay between the two. So Gandhi was a Hindu? Yes. But what's interesting about Gandhi is he was fighting colonial power, not the uh, you know, oppression of the poor. Just, just, yeah.
1: I think Philip asked this, but I'm not sure I got the answer. It's like the gods that they have, what are they praying? them for? Is it for protection? Is it like our concept of like that's the god for protection, is the god for rains, the god for crops, is it that kind of stuff? Their karma is what gets them into ultimate nothingness. So what do what do those other gods do?
0: My response to that would be there's a very important and a strong belief in the creative and the destructive work, especially of Shiva. So at some level, there is an interest, there is, I wouldn't say a fear, but there's a recognition, right, that A, something created us. And if that thing created us and has the power to destroy us, which we believe it does, then you know, it, it makes sense to worship it. But again, the kind of perspective you know, you're going to get with that is going to be from someone who's more educated. The, the average Hindu, at least from my study and from my reading, is not going to talk to you really about that. They're going to talk to you about, um, you know, did I provide for my family today, because that's my duty too. Yeah, but a lot of the gods again, they just they, it's hard to keep them straight sometimes. In fact, sometimes in some texts, the goddess is married to she, uh, yeah, the goddess is married to Shiva, so that's why Shiva is often talked about in in sexual terms, because he's actually married. I think, just in closing, I think the difficult thing about Hinduism is it's, it's different enough from the Abrahamic faiths, from Judaism and uh, Islam and from Christianity, that it can, it can be difficult to put your mind around the fact that there are different gods operating and some of them have the same qualities. They have the same powers. They have the same roles. Um, and, and in some cases, there's no reason to even place a priority on one over the other. So that can be a challenge.